भद्रम कर्णे शृणुयाम देवा भद्रम पश्येमाक्षरंगुष्टवागु शस्तनु व्यशेम देवहित यदायु स्वस्ति न इंद्रो वृद्धश्रवा स्वस्ति न पूषा विश्वेदा स्वस्ति नस्ताक्ष्यो अरिष्टनेमी स्वस्ति नो बृहस्पतिर्दा ओं शाति 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 ओम O Vedic gods, may we hear auspicious words with ears. While engaged in sacrifices, may we see auspicious things with the eyes. While praising the gods with steady limbs, may we enjoy a life that is beneficial to the gods. May Indra of ancient fame be auspicious to us. May the all-knowing Pusha, god of the earth, be propitious to us. May Garuda, the destroyer of evil, be well disposed towards us. May Brihaspati ensure our welfare. Om, peace, peace, peace. So we have started the uh, Mundaka Upanishad. Last time was the first class and we studied the first two mantras. So the mantras went like this. Om Brahma Deva Nam Pratama Sambhuva विश्वस्य कर्ता भुवनस्य गोप्ता स ब्रह्म विद्यादेष्टुत्रायुनिवर्सिद्यादेष्टुत्रायुनिवर्सिद्यादेष्टुत्रायुनिवर्सिद्यादेष्टुत्रायुनिवर्सिद्यादेष्टुत्रायुन
Paramara means uh, the ancient ones taught it to the more recent ones, basically establishing a lineage. So here uh, the, the commentator says, Shankaracharya says, this knowledge is being exalted by telling us this is most ancient, most venerable knowledge coming straight from God, um, straight down to our times through the lineage of rishis, the sages. Now, um, we have uh, third mantra. Shona kohavai mahashalo angirasam vidhivadupasannapaprachha kasminno bhagavo vigyate sarvamidam vigyatam bhavati iti. The third mantra. Here comes the student uh, who will ask the questions to the rishi angiras the last in the lineage mentioned so far. And then their dialogue will be the Upanishad, which we will study, the Mundaka Upanishad. Shaunaka, well known as a great householder, having approached Angiras duly, asked, O adorable sir, which is that thing having known, which having been known, all this becomes known? So this is where the actual teaching learning starts. The question will be followed by uh, the answers. And the rest of the Upanishad will be a dialogue between these two, teacher and student. The teacher is the Rishi, sage, Angiras, and the student is Shaunaka. Now, before we go ahead, let me just, let's just take a look at some remarkable features of this third, third mantra. It says, Shaunaka, the student, it just, Shaunaka just means Shunakasya Putra, that means the son of uh, Shunaka, Shaunaka. And by the way, Shaunaka is a very modern name, actually, a lot of, uh, you'll meet a lot of Indian men whose name is Shaunaka. And here is a very ancient reference to that name, goes back thousands of years. Um, it specifically mentions that he was a householder. Uh, Mahashala. Mahashala, the word used with uh, Mahashala, it literally means the person who has great Yajnashala. That means, you know, uh, in Vedic times, they performed, the main religious ritual was Vedic fire sacrifices. And they were performed in these altars, these uh, places which were organized for, um, you know, doing the Vedic fire sacrifice. They, they were called Yajnashala. Yajna means the fire sacrifice. Yajnashala means the place of the fire sacrifice. And by saying that Shaunaka was, uh, he or he had a great Yajnashala, Mahashala, multiple things are signified. First of all, it signified that he was a religious person or a pious person in terms of conventional religion in those days. So what he's asking here is beyond conventional religion. It's the higher spirituality. But the Vedic ritualism, which was the conventional religion of those days, Shaunaka was a practitioner. So there were a lot of these. Uh, he used to do a lot of Vedic rituals. So that's one. He was a pious person, um, a ritualist, practitioner ritualism. Um, Thereby, an important point is, is, is highlighted. Advaita Vedanta. The knowledge of the Upanishads 
is not against conventional religion. In classical Advaita Vedanta, um, the idea is a traditionally pious person, religious person, need not be spiritual, but if that person wants to become spiritual, conventional religiosity is a good preparation. Uh, it, it's not that, you know, I don't believe in all that God and all that, all that stuff. A lot of modern people say that. But I like uh, Advaita Vedanta. Well, so much the worse for you. It, can you become a non-dualist without all that God stuff? Yes, you can. However, that was not the attitude of the of, of traditional Advaita Vedanta or classical Advaita Vedanta. Classical Advaita Vedanta was very happy if you had a good religious upbringing, if you have devotion for God, if you have a basis in you know a pious life. Uh, if you are a believing person, uh, in terms of Vedic Hinduism, that would mean you practice the Vedic rituals which were prescribed for you. So that's the first thing which it signifies. The student is, is a religious man, is a pious man. And of course, he's going to ask here something which he has not got from his conventional religion. He's going to ask something higher. The second point um, about saying um, Mahashala, that this person has great um, Vedic uh, sacrificial altars. The second point is that it means he is a householder. Those persons who performed these Vedic rituals, they were uh, householders, they were married. They had families and uh, they were householders. And that's also uh, significant. Uh, Shankaracharya, the commentator, is a monk and he gives a lot of importance on monastic life. In fact, the very name Mundakopanishad um, one interpretation is it belongs to the shaven-headed ones, the monks. Uh, and Shankaracharya also means, uh, also writes in the introduction that uh, uh, this is a specialization for monks. Though everybody can become enlightened, everybody can have Brahmavidya. However, note that the entire lineage mentioned so far, none of them are monks. They are all householders. Um, so this is a knowledge widely open to, yes, monks later. But initially, always it was, uh, you know, mostly from father to son, you see that transmission. Uh, and the sages who are mentioned were in all probability married. They had uh, uh, families. So that's the second um, significance of saying great yajnashalas, great mahashala, that term. The third significance would be that this is, this is a man who is rich and successful and capable in the world. You see, if you had these, these Vedic sacrifices were expensive affairs. So if he was doing a lot of that and he had big fire, fire sacrifice altars, which means he was a man of means, uh, which shows that uh, it's good to go through the world, make a living, make a career, do well in the world. Such a person is actually well qualified for, uh, in, if after that you have a Vedantic inquiry, uh, uh, question about ultimate nature of things. It shows that that kind of a person is a good student of Vedanta. Um, if um, everybody can approach it, but it's note that the, the ideal student here is being projected as a man of the world, a pious, a good religious person, also successful in the world and wealthy and well-to-do and all of that. So this is the background. This is the significance of saying Shaunaka possessed great Vedic sacrificial altars. <clears throat> then 
he approached the sage, Angirasa, which again establishes that the importance of a, of a transmission of knowledge across teachers and students from ancient times. Angirasam Vidhivadupasanna approached him duly as per, literally it means as per the injunctions of the scriptures, Vidhivad Upasanna, in a traditional manner. Now that's also interesting. Um, Shankaracharya, the commentator here says, he makes uh, a little bit of a quibble here. He says, this approaching a teacher in the prescribed manner, there's a prescribed manner, in the prescribed manner, this has not been mentioned earlier. All the earlier teachers, five teachers were mentioned, teachers and students. They just said such and such people taught it to the next generation. But this, they approached the teacher and in a traditional manner. So this may be the beginning of the tradition. Or he says, he gives a beautiful thing um, that Madhya Deepa Nyaya, he says, yes. A lamp kept on the, uh, uh, on the doorstep. So if you keep a lamp, imagine a hut and it's evening in India and you keep a big lamp on the doorstep. It illumines just outside your door and it illumines inside the room. It illumines both inside and outside. What does that mean? This has been, this tradition has been introduced showing us that this was there earlier and it applies to us also later. It's earlier and later. And the point of all this discussion is um, he says, Shankaracharya, Asmadad Adishu Api Upasadana Vidher Ishtatvat. For us, that means Shankaracharya and his disciples and his contemporaries, he says, this is something that we all subscribe to. We would also like to follow. That there must be a, a traditional way of approaching a teacher. First of all, you must approach a teacher. The wise ones, the ones who are enlightened, ones who possess this knowledge, you must approach them. You know, this is, this is basically the, the Guru Shishya, the Guru and Disciple tradition in India. So you must approach a teacher. And don't try to just borrow a book from the library and, all right, I've learned uh, Vedanta. And, no, approach a teacher. And there was a traditional method of approaching a teacher. Of course, one has to be fit. So Shonaka's fitness is being shown. We know in, in Vedanta later on, the fourfold qualifications of a student, Viveka, Vairagya, the six disciplines, and then Mumukshutvam, intense desire to be free. Viveka is the, um, the discernment of the eternal and the non-eternal. Vairagya is a dispassion for the non-eternal, for worldliness. And the Shatsampati, the sixfold treasure, is the six disciplines. Shama, a control of the mind. Dhamma, a control of the, uh, the body and the senses. Then Uparati, a withdrawal from uh, sensuous enjoyment, uh, external enjoyment. Then uh, Samadhana, focus. Once you're withdrawn, then you have time and energy. Now you focus on your Vedantic study and um, you know, reasoning and meditation. And then titiksha, um, a spiritual toughness, fortitude. No matter what problems come up in life, I will pursue my spiritual path. And then there is shraddha, a faith in what is being taught here. At least a working faith. That there is something to this. It is an um, ancient lineage has transmitted of very wise people across the centuries and millennia. And I will learn this and it will, uh, it will revolutionize my life. It will 
I, I will attain fulfillment through this knowledge. So this kind of faith. And then Mumukshutvam, an intense desire to be free, free of the bondages of samsara. So this was the preparation for the student. And then the student comes and there's a traditional way of approaching this, well, the teacher. And that way, I'll tell you in a moment what it is, but the traditional way was basically the idea was with shraddha, with, uh, with respect. It's not somebody you pay, you know, you're my fitness coach, so I'll pay you a few hundred dollars and you will uh, give me some classes. Uh, so, no. I come with in all humility. I bow down to you, my, my master, and I surrender to you. And there was a way of showing surrender. So you would, you would not come empty-handed. You would come bearing some gifts. And even the gifts, there were specific gifts in those ancient days. Uh, one of the gifts was sacrificial wood. So you would come bearing a little bundle of sacrificial wood. What, what does that mean? Uh, remember, in those days, these masters would stay in ashrams in the forests. And they would perform these Vedic fire sacrifices. So here is uh, some wood for your Vedic fire sacrifice. That would be one of the gifts. And there would be maybe you know, money and flowers and fruit and whatever. Whatever is useful for the ashram. I remember. And, and that continues now. That continues now. That's what I want to emphasize. That um, even to this day, when a student approaches a teacher, you come with offerings and with all respect and humility and ask for that knowledge. I remember my one of my friends who went to the president of our order for initiation and this friend who became a monk later on is a hyper-rationalist. So when he went to the president of the order for initiation, he was told by the attendants, the attending monks that, all right, you come tomorrow, your initiation is at that, at that time and you bring these offerings like a dhoti, a cloth uh, and fruits and flowers and some token offering of money. So he said, but why? And uh, they said, oh, we don't know, it's traditional. All right, if you want to ask, go and ask the president himself. <laughs> and he had the, the, I don't know, what do you call it? The chutzpah, the, the cheek to go and ask the head of the whole order. So why should I give all these things to you if, you, if you're going to initiate me? And uh, he was very soft-spoken. He said, well, to show your love and respect to your teacher. And then he said, all right, I can show my love and respect in my way. I'll give you what I like. Why should I give you these particular things? And then the president replied, but if you give me a horse, will I take it? In Bengali, he said, what it means is, you will give me something that is useful for the ashram. So here is the monastery. So you'll give me something that will be useful for the monks who dwell in this monastery. Anyway, there is a funny story I can narrate about this. So when I mentioned this, I was teaching in Hollywood about six, seven years ago. When I mentioned this, that you come, the old idea was to come bearing a bundle of sacrificial wood, wood for the sacrificial fire. Next in the morning, when I came out of my room, I saw a neat little bundle of uh, sandalwood, small, this, this much, um, tied in a ribbon and put outside my door. I don't, till this day, I don't know who put it there. Somebody was inspired by this teaching. So please don't send uh, a sacrificial firewood through FedEx and UPS and all that. No, 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 that's not the way to do it. 
you're welcome to send donations to Vedanta Society. That will be useful. But don't send uh, firewood. There is another place in the Mundaka Upanishad, which we'll read much later, where the spiritual practices explained using the metaphor of archery, a bow and an arrow and a target and so on. Very beautiful uh, imagery is used and soaring poetry. So Swami Chetanandaji, who is in the Vedanta Society in St. Louis, he tells of the time when he was in Hollywood decades ago, and he taught this. And next in the morning, when he came out of the room, he found a bow and arrow <laughs> outside his room. Somebody had presented it to him. So Vidhivad. Vidhi means Vedic injunction. Um, according to the injunctions of the scriptures, one must traditionally approach a, teach, a teacher. Nowadays, you don't do it all that strictly. You don't come and bow down with a bundle of firewood. But what you do is you approach with reverence. You don't hire a teacher to teach you Vedanta. I remember somebody wrote to me that uh, I want to have a one-on-one -on -one instruction. I'm willing to pay $500 an hour. No, that's not how it works at all. <laughs> One must show one's uh, eagerness to learn and one's fitness to learn. And then this teacher will teach. This also shows that uh, Vedanta is not a missionary religion. So uh, the old idea was to make it as restrictive as possible, as restricted as possible. It would be difficult to get this knowledge. You would have to go through a lot of difficulty to even approach a teacher. And then the teacher might not teach you. Um, and might test you in many different ways. Not the other way around, where the teacher goes around advertising and tries to convert you to his uh, religion or sect or something. So what Vivekananda did was halfway between, you know, because the old way had a problem. And if you do too much of that, it begins to disappear. People don't know about it anymore. And a lot of people who would benefit from this knowledge, they don't get this knowledge at all. So it was very restrictive at one time. Um, and this is the age of the democratization of knowledge. It's made it, make it available to everybody. So Vivekananda said his mission was to spread Vedanta, to bring the Vedanta of the forests, literally his words, forests and of mountains into the cities. Uh, the Vedanta which was confined to the forests, I will bring it into the cities. Um, Vedanta which was the uh, which was the domain of a few pundits and monks, he said, I shall scatter it worldwide. This is very much the spirit of the age, that uh, all this knowledge should be available to everybody. So nowadays, you have all the books in so many languages, translations, so many teachers, which is all, all very good. Downside, there might be a slight downside, because in this restrictive method, you would get very serious teachers and students. And uh, if, if his one is not so demanding, then you might get a lot of people who might not be all that serious also. But anyway, Vivekananda's idea was even a little bit of this knowledge is useful. To the extent that one can take it, one can listen to it, it's good. It's good to be on the path. What else should I say? So then he, he, he comes to the teacher, Shaunaka, and asks a question. So here starts the dialogue. It's a very knowledge-based system. Knowledge, not in the sense of um, 
you know, textbooks and handouts and all that. But some, some insight, some great profound insight is to be transmitted. That's why there's a question and an answer and a teacher and a student. All this is knowledge-centered. It's all about transmitting a special knowledge. What is the question? One of the most tremendous questions um, ever asked. Kasminu bhagavo vigyate sarvamidam vigyatam bhavati iti. Oh, revered sir, what is that one thing by knowing which one knows everything? What is that one thing by knowing which one knows everything? What a question. If you just look at the, just the questions of, of the Upanishads, the little boy Nachiketa, he asks uh, the Lord of Death. Some say there is something beyond death. Some say there is nothing after death. Even the gods are confused on this, um, on this point. You, the Lord of Death, revealed to be the mystery of death. So a great profound question of what survives death? So basically, what is our nature? If I am body, I will not survive death. Is there something beyond this body which will survive death? Then in the Keno Upanishad, which we will read, um, I think, after this, um, the question, it starts with a question. There are the names of the teacher and student we don't know. It just starts with the question and then there's the teaching. The question is, Keneshitam patati preshitam mana kena prana prathama preti yukta keneshitam vacham imam vadanti Chakshushrotram Kaudeva Yunakti. So that's the question. Um, what propels this mind? What makes this mind think? What is that, that which um, enables this breathing in and out? What is it that gives us the experience of seeing with the eyes and hearing with the ears and the, the experience of being able to express our thoughts in speech? It is, what is that one bright entity be, behind all of these? Basically, he's asking about consciousness itself. Look at the profound questions. In the Chandogya Upanishad, the father, in fact, asks the, his son, who has just come back from school, did your teachers teach you that knowledge by knowing which everything is known? The same question, exactly what um, Shonaka is asking. So tremendous questions. At the very dawn of um, human philosophy, you know, thousands of years ago, that's what we have been trying to answer all along. Knowing that one thing by which everything is known. Um, even today, one of the finest books I read recently was uh, Jim Holt's Why Does the Universe Exist? Why Does the World Exist? An existential detective story. Why Does the World Exist? So he's a science reporter here in New York. And uh, he went around asking people this question. Why is there anything at all? Why, do anyth why does anything exist? Why does the universe exist? So he asked this question to um, cutting-edge physicists, um, the one who received the Nobel Prize a couple of years back, very well, Roger Penrose. He interviews Roger Penrose. He use, uh, interviews cutting-edge mathematicians, pure mathematicians. He interviews uh, philosophers. He interviews theologians, people of religion. He interviews um, uh, logicians, computer science people, and so on. Um, across the, the sort of leading thinkers in many fields. So it's a very dense book, but very well written also, very nicely written. But basically he's asking the same question which thousands of years ago Shaunaka asked. What is that one thing by which I know everything? Not only that, why does anything exist at all? Basically he's asking the cause of everything. Now these two questions are related. 
when Jim Holt asks this question to scientists and philosophers and mathematicians, what is that because of which everything exists? Shaunaka, he puts the same question in another way. He says, what is that by knowing which I know everything? One might ask, how can one know everything by knowing one thing? So if I want to know economics, I need to study economics. But studying economics doesn't um, give me knowledge of, say, music. Uh, studying music does not give me knowledge of Sanskrit grammar. So you know, if you study one thing, you know one thing. How can you know everything by studying one, by knowing one thing? Well, you can. If you know the cause, you know the effect. Let me explain that. In Sanskrit, the words are karana and karya. Karana means cause, karya means effect. What do I mean by cause and effect? Um, just like the wood. The wood is carved into furniture, tables and chairs. So the wood would be called in, um, in Sanskrit, upadana karana. In English, material cause. The cause means here the substance out of which something is made. If you're chair, sitting on a wooden chair, the cause of that wooden chair, the material cause of the wooden chair is wood. If you're wearing gold ornaments, the material cause of that ornament, the bracelet and the necklace is gold. Um, look at the ocean, um, the thousands of waves and all of that. The, the material cause of all those waves is water. So this, the cause, material cause is that out of which the effect is made. Now, it says, so what? The interesting thing is, the material cause continues in the effect. In fact, the effect is nothing but the material cause with a new name, form, and function. Same water. Now it acts like a wave. The function is different. It looks different. And you give it a new name, wave. Same gold. Now you can make it into a bracelet and you give it a new name, bracelet. It looks different and it's a different function. You can put it on your wrist. So the name is different. The form is different. The function is different. But the material continues to be the same thing. The cause gold continues in the effect bracelet. The cause water continues in the effect wave. The cause wood continues in the furniture chair. Let's say, okay. Fine, cause continues, the same thing is there in the effect. What is the cause is there in the effect. All right, but what's the point? What point are you making? Ah, the same cause can be made into various effects. If you keep changing the name and the form, you will get various effects. The same gold, it can be made into a bracelet and then into a necklace, into a ring, into a tiara, into an anklet. <laughs> so you can make the same um, gold into a variety of ornaments. Cause, one, gold. Effect, many. Now, if this is understood, same wood can be made into a variety of furniture. So, cause, one, wood. Effect, many kinds of effects. So, the point here is, if you want to know what all these effects are, you only need to know the cause. If you want to know what is, what is really, tell me that one thing by which I will understand the mystery of uh, a necklace and a bracelet and the, or, and the tiara and the anklet, you say the mystery is gold. The, the one thing you need to know is gold because they are all just that, gold. Uh, what is the one thing by which I will understand 
this glass of water and the and the wave and the drops of rain all of that clouds all of that i will understand by one thing water you need to know that it is water names are different forms are different activities are different but the substance continues the reality behind all of them continues to be one in order to know one thing by which you will know everything you have to know the material cause the cause the karana which appears as a variety of effects variety of karya um because it is the cause alone which continues in all that variety of effects the effects are just changes in names changes in forms changes in functions activities you know nama roopa vyavahara that changes but the reality does not change so that reality if you know that's the one thing by knowing which you know everything so by knowing gold you know all golden ornaments but notice one thing here but you must have noticed already by now yeah i know all the ornaments but i what i know about them is that they are all gold i know the substance now but i don't know the details of the ornaments necklaces are of various kinds who knows what kind of necklace tiffany's will come up with next uh, rings are of various kinds waves and bubbles and um, you know um, uh, raindrops they're all of various kinds i know they're all water but i don't know it in detail and that's true when you know the cause you know the reality but you don't know the details of the effects they keep changing you know what is it in reality now let's apply it here if you know gold you know what is there in all golden ornaments if you know wood you know what is there in all wooden um, furniture but now shaunaka is asking what is that one thing by knowing which i'll know everything not just ornaments not just furniture just everything in this universe living non living physical mental uh, everything will be known by knowing only one thing so that must be the cause of the entire universe jagat karanam the cause of the entire universe which through many names and forms and activities is appearing as this vast display before us so that answer is in vedanta is brahman and it's pretty logical because brahman is defined as sat being what is the the cause of what is the material of everything that exists existence itself existence itself clothed in various names forms and functions is the universe i'll repeat it what is this universe this universe is existence clothed in various names forms and functions if you ask what is all these what what are all these ornaments you say it is gold alone clothed in various names forms and functions which are all these ornaments in the in the same way what is all this universe it is brahman alone existence alone clothed in various names forms and functions which is this entire universe so what he is asking here the answer will be given by the rishi the answer will be we already know the answer it's brahman it's that ultimate reality which is appearing in various names and forms in this universe that thing which i mentioned that you know the cause but you don't know the details of the effects this is an important point so when a person becomes enlightened when you say he knows everything then enlightened one knows everything what do you mean by knows everything he knows that everything is brahman that's what he knows he knows the reality about everything that it is brahman does he know everything in detail does he become like encyclopedia britannica no if he wants to know things in detail 
you will have to use other means. It could be worldly means. You could, you could go to a library or to a computer and use Encyclopedia Britannica or just easier, ask Siri or something like that. Um, but, uh, or read the book. Or the person may use more uh, occult methods, some kind of spiritual power to know some things. Some people have those powers. But you will still have to use special ways of knowing. By knowing Brahman, you will not know the details of what could be there in this world. So it's not that a person who knows Brahman um, knows everything about science, everything about um, uh, dance and music and grammar. May not. May not. But the person knows the reality of everything that there is. I remember this monk I knew. I considered him to be, and many of us in our order, we considered him to be one of the enlightened ones in our, gener in our time, not generation. So one day he told me something very remarkable. Not me. He told another monk who told me. That monk said, I went to this Swami. I can tell you his name, his past away. So Ram Maharaj or Swami Mokshadanandaji. This monk told me, I went to Ram Maharaj, Swami Mokshadanandaji. And he told me the strangest thing. He said to me, you know, I don't know what things are there in that cupboard. But I know what they really are. What did he mean? I said, Swami, he, he had virtually admitted to you that he is an enlightened person. That he, he, he has realized Brahman. He knows the reality of everything. This is as, this is a, as clear an admission as you're going to get. Um, so, that's the thing. If a person becomes enlightened, in that sense. So, he knows only Brahman, he doesn't know science and music and art, then he's not very knowledgeable. But from that perspective, that ultimate reality perspective, Brahman alone is the reality. All the rest are appearances. And from uh, you may know them in detail or you may not know them, you're not missing much. The enlightened one is not missing much. Just by that knowledge of Brahman, that person is liberated from suffering. And knows the secret of everything, of, of this entire universe. I remember when in my study of Buddhism with Professor uh, Garfield, there was always a discussion, a, a big source of discussion in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism. The Buddha is supposed to be omniscient. He's supposed to know everything. Often the Buddha is described as omniscient. Now, omniscient means knowing everything. But everything is delusion. In Buddhism, everything is an appearance. The Buddha knows rightly. So Buddha cannot know everything because everything is, is uh, 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 illusionary. So now the question arises, when you say Buddha is omniscient, does the Buddha know everything in detail or does the Buddha know nothing? <laughs> because if you know these things in the world, you are knowing falsely, basically. And Buddha cannot know falsely. So Professor Garfield used to use this funny term, brainstem Buddha. Brainstem Buddha. That means after you become enlightened, you are reduced to like a comatose stage where you know nothing at all. No, he was just joking. What it means is the Buddha can know everything. The enlightened one can know everything just as we are knowing. They can know everything. And being a great yogi, they can know things in detail also, many things which we may not know. And most important, they know the ultimate reality. And they know means they are that ultimate reality. They become enlightened about it. So they can know as much as we know, more than what we know, 
and they know the reality also. Um, so that was the question. Knowing what? One, one knows everything. The knowing the cause of this universe, one knows all the effects. Because if you know the cause, you know the effects. So knowing Brahman, one knows everything in the universe, but with a caution. One knows everything in the universe as Brahman. Then let me just see what Shankaracharya says here. So this question, how did Shaunaka know how to ask this question? That, that might be a question. And Shankaracharya says there are two, two options. One is um, he might have heard that there are these enlightened masters. They know the secret of all existence. They know that one thing by knowing which everything is known. So he says, Shishta Pravadam, among cultured people, among learned people, among spiritual people, he might have heard this talk. If you're enlightened, you know everything. So he wants to ask, what is this I've heard? That you, by knowing something, you know everything. Or, um, he says, Atava, or, Loka Samanya Drishtya, Gyatva Eva Papracha. Or he might have used just common sense logic. What is that common sense logic? Exactly what I just described. By knowing the cause, you know the effect. So just as by knowing the cause, I know that if I know the gold, I know all the ornaments. By knowing water, I know all the waves and all that. In the same way, is there anything, one thing in this entire universe by knowing which I know everything? So thinking in this way, Shaunaka might have come across this, come upon this question. Tell me that by knowing which I know everything. This shows that go to these sages with the highest question. Go to these sages with the highest question. How, you know, like Narendranath, he goes to um, Sri Ramakrishna and asks, have you seen God? We often used to joke in our monastery. People would come to us in the monastery and there are these places where, you know, there's prasad and the, the, the sacred food and everybody goes there to eat and favorite item there is khichuri and often a monk will be asked where is the khichuri <laughs> so don't ask the question you're coming to the monastery and asking is where is the khichuri well, not a bad question but that should not be the reason you're coming to a monastery that should not be the reason you're coming to a spiritual teacher to ask where is the khichuri available where the khichuri is available <laughs> um, once uh, there was a class of young novice monks uh, they were being taught by senior monks. And after the class, they were asking questions to the senior monks. Nobody was asking me anything. I was waiting to let me somebody, somebody ask me something. And then this young novice comes to me and said, Swami, I have a question. I thought, aha, now I'm going to tell him about Brahman. And you know, they all know that I'm fascinated. I have this fascination for aeroplanes. The one day, the young <laughs> brahmachari asked me, by pointing to a plane which was flying across. So how does that fly? <laughs> I thought, oh no, he should have asked me about Brahman. This question of Shonaka shows you approach the teachers with this serious question in life. You know, the question which will solve the problem of life. Uh, why am I here? What is the point of life? Does God exist? How can I realize God? That's the point. That's the question we should go to. Uh, to 
spiritual teachers, monks, with these questions. You can still ask where the khichdi is available. That's not bad, but that should not be the central question you are asking. Yeah. So uh, Shankaracharya says, he in fact gives the example of gold. He says, suvarnadi, like gold, etc. By knowing gold, you know everything made of gold. Similarly, he says, kim nu asti sarvasya jagat bhedasya ekam karanam. Is there one cause of the entire universe which is so diverse? Has it come from one reality? See, this is no, not very different from what a cosmologist asks, you know, or what a particle physicist is asking. I've seen many physicists who are also very, very spiritual because they have the same quest for finding the ultimate reality, that from which everything has come. What is that one thing from which everything has come? And just by the way, that book, Why Does the World Exist? Um, Jim Holt. You might be wondering, do they... Do they come to Vedanta at all in that book? In one place it's mentioned. He's asking a, one of the greatest American philosophers of, of our times who has passed away recently, Robert Nozick. Robert Nozick. And Jim Holt asks him the question. And Robert Nozick, after discussing some stuff, he sort of shrugs and says, who knows? Maybe the ancient Hindus were right. Atman is Brahman. <laughs> so that, that much he has touched Advaita there. Now, the answer, the answer from the teacher. Tasmai sahovacha dve vidye veditavye itihasmayat brahma vidovadanti parajaiva paraja. What's the translation? To him, he said. To whom who said? To Shonaka Angiras said. He said, there are two kinds of knowledge to be acquired, the higher and the lower. This is what the tradition, as the tradition runs, the knowers of the import of the Vedas say. So in ancient times, to him, the student who had asked this question, the master Angiras replied thus. And he replied in, a, in this intriguing way, instead of answering his question directly, Tell me the one thing by knowing which everything is known. You could have just said Brahman and that's it. It would be all over. He said, knowledge is of two kinds. There is the higher knowledge and the lower knowledge. The transcendent knowledge and the relative knowledge. The supreme knowledge and the worldly knowledge. These two kinds of knowledge are there, which are, which are to be acquired or can be acquired. And again, he says, you know, repeating upon the theme of an ancient uh, lineage of, of knowledge. He says, this is what has been taught to us by the knowers of Brahman. Brahma Vidovadanti. The knowers of Brahman have told us this. These knowers of Brahman have told us this. And just say something about it before going forward. Always in ancient Indian texts, you will find the credit. It's like the authors are not at all willing to take credit. They always want to pass the credit back to their guru or to the lineage of teachers. Very different from the modern world. It's very important to give citations and references. And there are also rankings. If you are um, a scholar, how many times have you been quoted? And everybody is very, very careful to see that you have been, your, your index is high enough that others are quoting your work. 
and you must be given credit for your work. And there are even people who steal credit from others and pass it off as their own, just the opposite of this tradition, where the author seems to always want to remain hidden and give credit to his master or his lineage. Um, and this, so Professor Parimal Patil, who teaches Indian philosophy at uh, Harvard, the Harvard Philosophy Department, Emerson Hall, while introducing his course on um, Buddhist philosophy, classical Buddhist philosophy in India, the very first class, he said, he gave a note of caution. He said, what you're going to see here is a source of, is a set of original texts and commentaries and sub-commentaries and discussions on it. That's how philosophy was done in ancient India. So for example, Upanishads are here in Hinduism. Upanishads are here. Now then next you have the commentaries of Shankaracharya. And then you'll have sub-commentaries of Anandagiri. And then you will have a variety of texts being written, drawing upon these sources. Commentary, sub-commentary, sub-sub-commentary, and so on. And then he said, Professor Patil said, to us in the West, it appears to be, you know, um, insignificant. You're just repeating the same thing. There's nothing new here. The whole modern academic approach in the West is, in order to make your mark, you must say something different. You must say something new. You must prove you know, that all your professors and teachers were fools and you are the one who has really got something new and interesting to say for the first time. Then you get published and then you are... So he said, don't believe it. Um, in the West, in our Western tradition also, he was telling, the professor was telling his students at Harvard, all of us, we are building on the work done by predecessors. Even when you are disagreeing, you are building on the work done by your predecessor. Uh, in Western philosophy, he says that he says that if you look into some of our postmodern philosophers today, if you push deeply enough, you will find Heidegger behind all of it. If you push, you know, unmask Heidegger, you will find Husserl behind Heidegger. If you unmask Husserl, you will find behind him um, uh, Hegel and, uh, and Schopenhauer. Uh, if, you, if you look into Nietzsche, you will find Schopenhauer behind Nietzsche. If you look into Hegel, you will find Kant behind Hegel. And so each generation is actually building on uh, work done by earlier generations. Even if you are refuting it, you're still building on it. And on the other hand, he says, in the Indian tradition, whether it's Hindu or Buddhist, it seems to be commentaries on the past masters. But there also, there is enough scope for difference. Only the way difference is newness and difference and originality are expressed in these traditions is in a, uh, in a masked, very respectful way. So he gave an example. A very great, one of the greatest Tibetan uh, philosopher monks, lamas is Songkhapa. So... Um, Somebody is disagreeing. A later Tibetan writer is disagreeing with Sankhapa. How does he disagree? He says, this, what is written in this text of Sankhapa, Sankhapa, the great Sankhapa has come upon this from his own omniscience and his uh, originality. What does he want to say? This was not the original intent of the Buddha. 
That's what he wants to say. And he wants to differ from Tsongkhapa and introduce a new interpretation. But he puts it in the language, the omniscient Tsongkhapa, out of his brilliant originality, has come up, 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 upon this teaching, has given this teaching. But he's actually going to say something different. <laughs> he's differing from Tsongkhapa there. Anyway, um, all of this was just to comment upon the phrase, thus we have been taught by the teachers, of, by the knowers of Brahman, Brahmavida. Shankaracharya here says, when the sage Angiras says, says that we have heard this from the knowers of Brahman, the word knowers of Brahman might mean two things. One is, knowers of Brahman might mean, in one sense, Brahma means the Veda, the Vedas itself. So it might mean those who know the ritualistic portion of the Vedas, or it might mean those who know the ultimate reality, Brahman. So knowers of Brahman might mean both things. He says, Brahmavida, this is Shankaracharya's commentary. Vedartha Vigyaha, those who know the meaning of the Veda. That's also Brahmavid, knower of Brahman. Or it might mean Paramartha Darshina, those who know the ultimate reality, which is what Shaunaka is asking. Shaunaka already has been practicing Vedic rituals, but he's not asking about that. He's asking about the ultimate reality. So the knowers of Brahman can refer to experts in, in, in Vedas. Or it can refer to the enlightened ones who know the ultimate reality. In any case, they have told us about it. If um, So he's talking about two kinds of knowledge. One kind of knowledge is the lower knowledge, the relative knowledge, the worldly knowledge. The other kind is the higher knowledge, the supreme knowledge, transcendental knowledge, spiritual knowledge. Um, what is the worldly knowledge? In the Vedic sense, the worldly knowledge, this worldly and next worldly, you know, how to be happy and healthy and wealthy and do well in this life through Vedic rituals. Or after death, how do you go to one of many heavens through Vedic rituals? All of that is the lower knowledge. Um, and Shankaracharya says, apara. So the term used in Sanskrit is apara. Apara means not transcendent, not beyond. And the higher knowledge, which you, Shaunaka, are asking is para is transcendent, beyond, supreme knowledge. What is this lower knowledge? Shankaracharya uses a very uh, profound short phrase, dharma, dharma dharma sadhana tat phala vishaya, that which deals with, um, with means, with dharma and adharma, and the results. Means or sadhana, means. Dharma and adharma the righteous and the unrighteous, and the results of this. What does this mean? What are the means? In Sanskrit, karma and upasana, from the Vedic perspective, the rituals and the various meditations given in the Vedas, by which you will get certain results. They're all part of the lower knowledge. All the rituals given in the Vedas, and all the meditative practices, by which you can go to heaven, or things like that. You, know, you can defeat the enemy, or get rainfall, or whatever. Whatever is promised there. So that is called sadhana. And uh, it also deals with, the lower knowledge deals with dharma dharma. What is dharma dharma? Right and wrong. So in the Vedas you will find vidhi nisheda, vidhi nisheda, uh, do's and don'ts, injunctions and prohibitions. These are good things, you ought to do these. These are evil things, do not do these. So that's also part of the lower knowledge. And then the results. Uh, phala. The results are this worldly results, 
you may get you may want rainfall you may want prosperity you may want um, uh, health in the family and the children or victory you defeat your neighboring king and so on and so forth uh, or in today's world you can have a hostile takeover of your neighboring company or whatever and other worldly results you go to heaven after death these are all the lower knowledge he says and you can extend this further this is in the vedic context but everything else that we do um, you know physics chemistry mathematics and music and dance and grammar and philosophy and all of that is all of it is under the banner of apara not transcendent the lower relative knowledge and compared to this there is something called para transcendent knowledge that which you are asking you shonaka you are asking for something which will the one cause the reality of this entire universe brahman that knowledge which which uh, shows you that it makes you realize that um, that is the higher knowledge so this distinction he draws shankaracharya makes a rather harsh comment here he says all lower knowledge is ignorance that's a very stunning comment all our sciences our arts including all the vedic the vedic ritualism he, he says um aparahi vidya avidya aparahi vidya avidya sa nirakartavya the lower knowledge is avidya is ignorance and that has to be transcended and so you have to go beyond that so what he means here is it's not that it's ignorance it's not ignorance to learn physics or grammar or music or no 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 that's shocking it is perfectly all right for this relative world if you learn that you will learn about this cosmos if you learn physics if you learn medicine you will learn how to cure disease but none of them will take you uh, to enlightenment and free you from samsara they are all within the realm of maya that's what it is meant they are all useful and they will if you are intent is the world then they are all you shouldn't call them ignorance because they are revealing things about this world but the world and the knowledge of the world they are all within maya that's what shankaracharya wants to say and if you want reality itself then you need to have knowledge of brahman or realize that that spiritual reality which is the one cause of this entire universe um yeah so the, the lower knowledge apara vidya can reveal to us name form and function the higher knowledge will reveal to us the one reality out of which this entire universe is made i'm saying this because um it can be misused i remember this one physicist he came to me in india he was uh, he narrated a, a rather sad tale he said he had gone to one of the leading advaita vedanta teachers of that time and the teacher asked him so what do you do and this gentleman said i'm a physicist i study physics and i do research he said oh all that is maya forget it come to me i will give you knowledge of reality he was shocked you know he felt bad that his entire quest is maya and ignorance now in defense of that master who said this was a very well known master he was just literally quoting shankaracharya he was literally quoting shankaracharya this is but it has to be taken in context i think a much better way is there are traditional teachers who say this much better way is that all the lower knowledge uh, is a good preparation for the higher knowledge notice shaunaka he was a man of the world obviously he was learned both in vedic ritualism and in worldly affairs he had done very well 
And having done very well is not against spirituality. In fact, it prepared him for that spiritual question. Um, so the lower knowledge, the lower Vedic knowledge and the lower secular knowledge, all of it is good. Knowledge is always good. That's why Vivekananda's approach to this lower knowledge was not uh, confrontational. Uh, he wanted a rapprochement between science and religion. He said all knowledge is good, all knowledge is sacred, but one must move towards this higher knowledge. And this will. Shankaracharya himself says, Krama Apekshatvat. There is a sequence implied here. First, you come to the lower knowledge, but then you transcend that, and then you come to this higher question. So he agrees that there is a sequence. One must go through this lower knowledge. The master said this to Shaunaka. Because he wanted to point out, before I answer your question, you must not take this as the kind of knowledge you have been used to. You have asked me a question. I will give you the answer. But before that, be alert, be cautioned that what you are asking for is not like all the other things you have learned. It's different. That's why he's saying there are two kinds of knowledge. There's an ultimate reality and there is this lower knowledge which you have been used to. Both can be acquired and should be acquired, but they're different. And how they're different is going to elaborate before answering the question. All right. Let's look at the um, comments. Sudhirji says, as we need to follow protocol for approaching teacher, however it is said that when you are ready, teacher, guru appears. Mm -hmm. I guess that's just a comment. Um, Abhijit. Champanirkar says, we once took a log cake for one Swami. Yes, <laughs> that's a log and also a cake. Alpanaji says, when does one know that he or she knows everything is Brahman? Alpanaji, would you like to elaborate the question? Pranam Maharaj. Uh, so intellectually, yes, we understood it and we've accepted it. So if, if any even event occurs or any situation occurs, Yes, we can mentally say that everything is Brahman and it doesn't impact me. Is it really knowing that everything is Brahman? Or... No, it's not just, it's not like that. It's not just accepting that everything is Brahman. Yeah. See, this is a common theme in all uh, Vedanta and in, uh, Indian religion. When you say everything is God or God is everywhere, this is exactly what is meant here. It's just being stated in a more philosophical way. What is but the knowing that one thing by which everything is known? The answer is Brahman. But that we find across religion, especially in Hinduism. Because Hinduism, Vivekananda said, we Hindus worship a transcendent, immanent God. The ultimate reality is beyond this universe, time, space, and causation, which is also in and through this universe. Everything here is pervaded by that divine reality. Now, that's generally accepted as a matter of faith by Hindus. This is not what Vedanta wants to say. It's what Vedanta wants us to see is, a good example is our dream example. When we wake up from the dream, we look back upon the dream and uh, there were people, there were places, sky, earth, birds, dogs, whatnot. And I was also there in my own dream. And I wake up and I say, all of that, all the people there, the sky and the earth and living things, non-living things, all of it was pervaded by me. Um, by me means by the dreamer. In fact, 
not even pervaded. All of those things did not exist. It's only the dreamer's mind which existed and which was dreaming all these things. So it is, so that's a dream example that we understand. So, and then we will realize then nothing there can really uh, affect me because they are all appearances in my own mind. In the dream, that's fine. What Vedanta is going to show us in the waking, where we feel I am this little being and there's a vast world separate from me and there might be God somewhere behind this entire world. No, Vedanta will show me that the one reality of this entire universe out of which everything is made, just like everything in the dream is made from you, the dreamer. Similarly, everything in this waking world is made from Brahman, which is you. So that has, will be shown to the same clarity that you have about your dream. About your dream, you don't say, I believe that I was, that was all me. You say, I know it was all me. I, the dreamer, was everything in the dream, in my own dream. Similarly, I, Brahman, am everything here. Because out of me, existence, out of me, the pure consciousness, everything is made here. To do that, first of all, I have to realize myself as pure consciousness, as pure being. Right? That's not easy at all. That's why this question comes. Do I have to believe this and just say that, oh, it's all Brahman and uh, nothing affects It will not work. As long as I think I am this little body, things will affect me. Um, I, I will feel the, the pinch and the pain of uh, poverty and disease and humiliation. All of that failure, everything I'll fail. I'll feel everything here as long as I'm this little body-mind. It's only when I realize that I'm this underlying reality, that I'm the answer to Jim Holt's question. Why does this universe exist? It exists because of Brahman, which is you. Then only I transcend this uh, apparent creation, this appearance. Abhijit asks, in Mantra 3, the profoundness of the question you explained using cause and effect example, but if Brahman is Karya Karana, Bilakshana Brahma, beyond cause and effect, or ajata, then how does this explanation hold? Yes. So how does this explanation hold? The whole point of the Upanishads is to show us that we are Brahman, that there is a reality called Brahman, and we are that. However, it has to begin with where we are. And where we are is, I am this body-mind, and here is this world. So I have to start here. And how do you start here? You have to start here by pointing to Brahman, which is the cause of everything. Then when we begin to realize Brahman, uh, we, we, we understand what Brahman is, we will see actually Brahman is not even the cause of this universe. Brahman alone is. See, in your dreams, if you saw a sky and the earth and houses and people and uh, tables and chairs and coffee cups, and then you say, I, the dreamer, am the cause of all of that. But really, are you the cause of uh, coffee cups and table and chair and sky and earth? No, because there is, in the dream, what you saw was a dream. There was not really a table or a chair or a coffee cup. No, no. There were appearances of the mind. So the mind is not really producing tables and chairs in the dream. There are appearances of the mind. Similarly, Brahman is not really producing a universe. The universe itself is not a, real, not a reality. It's an appearance of Brahman. So Brahman is not a cause, actually. But that's the next stage. That's a higher stage. Before we go to that, uh, we must first take this world as real, which everybody does, and then look for an underlying cause of this world, discover that, then we begin to find that that underlying cause is neither a cause nor an effect. So that will come next. Ajata is, as he mentions, Ajata is even higher. 
or even deeper than that. Uh, Sri Ram and, uh, says that, is the import of the saying that post-enlightenment all desires are fulfilled means that no worldly desires are left, hence no desires remain to be fulfilled. That's true. Um, if you realize the one thing out of which this entire universe is made, and then you realize you are that one thing, then this entire universe is made out of you or is an appearance in you. What could you want in this universe anymore? Whom could you want? What could you want? Um, what, what, whom would you reject? What do you want to reject? Everything is you. And in fact, everything is not. You only are. You the ultimate reality. That's what we will realize. In that case, all your desires are fulfilled. What desires remain? If you are everything that there is, what, what desires remain? And not just theoretically, you will actually see it to be a fact. Sounds so similar to the unified theory of physics. Yes, the grand unified theory. True. What is that one thing which will uh, uh, unify all the forces of the uh, universe? So somebody actually asked an Advaita master who had no training in modern science. Uh, he was a monk in the Himalayas. So nowadays, modern scientists are looking for, physicists are looking for one theory to unite all theories. And they call it a grand uni unified theory. Um, so will this be Advaita? Will this be Brahman? Will this be Advaita, non-duality? His answer was so beautiful. He says, if you unify the entire cosmos and explain it by one principle, and he said in Hindi, that will be a non-duality of the insentient universe. You are still there as the witness of that no, non, the scientist who discovers it. He is still there as the witness of that unified, insentient matter, matter, energy, time, space, all unified in by one principle. But you are still the witness of that. You are not part of it yet anymore. So you, if you uni unite, or uh, if you um, uh, find something to unite this entire universe, including you, the consciousness, then you will have non-duality. And you'll find the only way of doing that is to see the non-duality of consciousness. Consciousness alone appears as all of this. Then, But yes, the quest is the same. That's why even the fundamental science, cosmology, particle physics, I think that's also a spiritual quest. Kalpana says, why does the degree of dif reality differ between cause and effect? Um, usually it does not. If the cause is transformed into effect, but in Advaita Vedanta it does. See, there are two kinds of cause and effect, causality. One is called Parinama. The cause is transformed into the effect. Milk is transformed into yogurt or curds. Seed is transformed into the plant, the seedling. And there's another kind where the cause appears as the effect. So the rope appears as the snake. Not rope does not actually become the snake. The dreaming mind appears as the dream world. It's not that the dreaming mind has become chairs and tables and people and places in the dream. It just appears, looks like that. The movie screen appears as, you know, planets and stars and King Kong and dinosaurs and whatnot. It's not that the screen has actually become uh, a giant ape or a, a Jurassic Park dinosaur. No, it appears like that. So there are two kinds of caus causality here. One, the cause is really transformed into the effect, like a seed into a plant. 
or the cause appears as the effect, like a movie screen appearing as a movie or a rope appearing as snake. Now, in the case of, an, of a real transformation of the cause into the effect, the levels of reality are both are same. Both are transactional reality, relative reality. They have the same level of reality. But in the case of an appearance, cause appearing as the effect, the effect is of a lower level of reality than the cause. So you are the dreamer. You are of one level of reality. Your dream is of a lower level of reality. The movie screen is one level of reality. The movie is fiction. It's a lower level of reality. The rope is one level of reality. The snake which you mistake it to be is of a lower level of reality. Brahman is the ultimate level of reality. The world is a lower level of reality called the Vyavaharika transactional world. Yeah. Michael Bird says, how do I balance the acquirement of worldly knowledge for my career with my meditation realization of higher knowledge? As a householder, my career serves a purpose. I feel sometimes even if I try to spiritualize my work and let go of the results, the worldly knowledge of my career pulls me deeper into Maya, creating a forgetfulness of my true nature. That's why Shankaracharya is especially harsh. He says, Aparavidya uh, avidya hisa. That is ignorance. True. We must balance. Uh, we must, Sri Ramakrishna put it this way. Keep, just think of a balance. You know, seesaw. So the, where you put the weight, that side will go down. If you put the weight on this side, then that side will, this side will go down. So if the weight is too much on the world side, the mind will, the other side will come off from God. Put more weight on the God side, then the mind will come off from the world. Um, that effort in sadhana has to be made. One powerful way is to make sure our goal is God-realization, and not to be bothered too much about um, the worldly life, acquisition, targets to be met. All of those will happen, and we have been pursuing that all, all our lives anyway. By a lifetime of effort and habit, it will continue. Don't worry about it so much. But that no longer is your priority. Same question Sri Ram was asking. And the lower knowledge be an obstruction? Yes, by causing distractions, misuse of energy. True. I have been a bookworm and I, I was warned by a senior monk that um, see, spirituality and intellectuality are not the same thing. So yes, study is a help to spirituality, but too much involvement in study and intellectuality can, will be an obstruction to spirituality. Um, so I know the monk under whom I joined, I was trained. He was very, uh, he was trained by Swami Premeshanandaji, Premesh Maharaj. And Premeshanandaji told this monk who trained me, uh, he told him that, I have only one fear about your spiritual life, your love of knowledge. By your love of knowledge, he meant your love of books and reading and studying. So it's good, but keep it under control. So this monk, I used to see, if, um, when I became, when I joined the order, I used to see this Swami who trained me. He would study regularly, but he would study one hour a day. Not more than that. He would strictly regulate it. So time for meditation, time for devotion, time for service, and yes, time for study too. And uh, he would smile at me. Uh, you know, he said, I was a lot like you in my younger days. I would think I would read all these books. <laughs> But no, very soon I, I acquired the maturity to see that you cannot read all these books and you need not. In fact, you must not. <laughs> and then, 
um, Sangeeta says, in the context of the ideal student being mentioned as a pious religious household in most Hindu knowledge texts, when this shift to emphasizing monasticism uh, happened? I think it happened around the Buddhist time, though in the most ancient times also you see monasticism. One monk told me, who is the great hero of the Upanishads? Yajna Valkya, whom you will find, we will meet him in the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. And so Yajna Valkya is a householder. He's not married just once, but twice. And uh, he is a wealthy man. And he's a very learned person, a Vedic scholar who has many students and so on and so forth. But at the end of the Upanishad, he leaves everything and he becomes a monk and goes off. So the institution of monasticism was well understood even in, in times of the most ancient Upanishads also. And the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad actually talks about how one can become a monk. So this uh, institution of monasticism was always there. But at some time, clearly you can see at the time of Shankaracharya, his guru, uh, Gaudapada Acharya, and before that, the Buddhist monks, spiritual knowledge sort of passed into the hands of uh, monks. But even then, there was always a householder lineage. In Advaita Vedanta also, we talk about Shankaracharya, uh, Gaudapada, Shankar, Govindapada, Shankara, and the disciples, monastic disciples of Shankaracharya, the lineage. However, you also talk about a great teacher like Vachaspati Mishra, who was a, a householder. He was a great master of Advaita Vedanta. Peter says, it is correct to say that whatever is impermanent or temporary, like the world, is unreal. That's what Advaita Vedanta says. That everything is temporary. That everybody agrees. It's common sense. Look around you. Every entity in this world is changing and is temporary. Nothing permanent here. So that is common sense. But temporary is equal to unreal. That's an equation that Advaita Vedanta and Buddhism, they draw. Advaita draws it on the basis of the 16th verse of the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Nasato vidyate bhavo, na bhavo vidyate sata. There's an analysis, if you read Shankaracharya's commentary there, he starts with, um, with temporary, changing, and ends up with false, illusory appearance. What is permanent like self or pure consciousness is real and permanent, yes. But you have to be careful there. Permanent in relation to the impermanent. But the self or Atman is not one item among many things. In the universe, there are many things which are impermanent and one thing is permanent, and that is God or Atman. Not like that. It's more like the bracelet and the uh, tiara and the ring. They are impermanent. You can melt the bracelet and take the gold and make a uh, ring out of it. You can melt the ring, you can then take that same gold and make a necklace out of it. So bracelet, ring, necklace, they are impermanent. But what is permanent and continuous? Gold. But the gold is not another kind of ornament. Don't make, we don't make a mistake by saying that, oh, there are some impermanent ornaments like uh, bracelet, tiara, and ring which can be melted, and there's a permanent or ornament called gold. No, no, that's wrong. You will see you have not understood, you will immediately laugh and say, you haven't understood what gold is. Gold is the permanent reality of these impermanent ornaments. Similarly, there is an underlying reality, not a separate reality. Why I'm saying this is, I'm keeping in mind the sword of the logicians, uh, the, you know, the Madhyamaka logicians, 
will immediately attack you if you talk, talk about an independently existing separate ultimate reality. They will cut it down with their logic. Mm. Could it be that this universe is Maya because we are all in the dream of Vishnu? Yes, that's how it has been put. We are all in the dream of Vishnu. Prashali says, amazing how monks who have not learned new sciences can immediately understand the nuances of questions in the scientific world. Yes, the big questions. If you ask them details of mathematics and uh, discoveries, they don't know any of these things. But if you ask the philosophical questions, they give most remarkable answers, really remarkable answers. I've seen talking about the question of consciousness, one monk in one sentence, basically he covered the entire spectrum of modern theories of consciousness and Buddhist and Vedantic theories. So, so they have a very good grasp on the philosophy of consciousness, existence, and the purpose of human life, bliss, ananda, nature of dukkha. All these things they have a really, really deep understanding, deepest possible understanding. Um, Shilpaji says, if you once realize Brahman, you say that what want or desire would you have? Then why did Brahman want Leela? Did it want Leela? I mean, you can say it wanted Leela, Leela is play. But then there are answers to that because the Vedantins will say this is the very nature of Brahman to shine. Does the sun want to shine or is it the nature of the sun to shine? Please ask your question. We'll end with that. I want to ask you when, when Taku asked him about about whether his wife was Vidya Shakti or is this what he meant? I mean, Paravidya, para Paravidya. And, and Thakur used to say Abhidda, Vidya and Avidya. Uh, um, no, what he, what he meant was that uh, there are these two manifestations of Maya in this world. One which involves you more and more in samsara in this world. Greed, ambition, um, you know, hatred, anger, um, lust. This, this, uh, we're caught in the travails of the world more and more. And there is another aspect of Maya which prevails, uh, which, um, uh, which frees us from the world. Self-control, devotion, um, selflessness. All of these are also Maya, Maya, but they are Vidya Shakti. So that's what he was asking. Thank you, All right. We'll, we'll take up more details in the next class. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Arpanamastu